Hey friends, thanks for joining us again today. Before we jumped into the episode for today, I wanted to let you know of another webinar, free webinar opportunity that Scott and I are putting on through Northern Seminary. And this time we're actually having uh, Tara Beth Leach, Scott's former student and now senior pastor at First Church of the Nazarene of Pasadena, also known as Paznaz. And this webinar is going to be on women leading in the church. And Scott has really dedicated a lot of his career and voice to advocate for empowering women to be a part of really every sphere of church leadership and work. So in this webinar, you know, we're going to talk about the different perspectives and voices that have contributed to this conversation. You'll learn about women's voices and influence that really come from the New Testament that sound set the foundation for um, what we're going to be talking about. And you'll also have the opportunity to ask Scott and Tara Beth some of your biggest questions about this topic. So uh, this webinar, Women Leading in the Church, is going to be next Thursday, May 25th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. So we'd love to have you join us live um, with the webinar. And if you'd like to register and sign up to get the link to join us, you can do that at seminary.edu slash sheleads webinar. Again, that link to sign up is seminary.edu slash she leads webinar. And uh, I'll also include a link in the show notes uh, for you to click there if that would be easier. But thanks again for joining us. Really think you're going to enjoy our conversation today. So without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Dr. Matthew Bates about his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Well, Scott Chaz, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah. So Scott, what do our listeners have to uh, look forward to hearing from Matt on? And I don't know, maybe give him a little bit of an introduction about what he's up to, where he's at, what he's working on. Well, Matt is a professor of, I guess, Bible, religion, New Testament theology at Quincy University on the great Mississippi River, uh, where my son played baseball one summer for the Quincy Gems. So we've been to Quincy many times. And I wonder if Matt has anything to say about the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> well, you're just baiting me there. Uh, Scott knows, I think, that I am a Giants fan, not a Cubs fan, um, and uh, still a little bit bitter over how things went down uh, 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 at the end of last season with the Giants uh, bullpen meltdown and, uh, and whatnot. So yeah. uh, I I'm love not- baseball. I'm not at all bitter. Uh, <laughs> of course I, you're not. I feel that the best team won. Uh, and, uh, we were at we were at that first game when John, with Johnny Cueto pitched a great game for the Giants. And uh, Javier Baez hits that sky-high ball. And we lost it because we were way back up underneath the bleachers. And we didn't know where the ball was. So all we could see was the left fielder walking up. And I thought, he's got, he's going to catch it. And the next thing you know, it lands in the basket. Yeah, and, it just uh, snuck out. Just snuck yes, out. Yes, it did. Well, at any rate, Matt, we'll uh, we'll move on. I know <laughs> yeah, that's good. a broken rib and haven't been able to play that much catch with your sons <laughs> this summer. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking great things for your 
family and baseball this summer. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Matt, Matt Bates has written what I think is one of the most extraordinary books that I have read in the last decade. Um, and in many ways, it uh, it brought together themes that have been important to me in my own life since I was a college student and became convinced that there were a whole lot of people who said they were Christians who were just kind of play, play acting their way through it all. And I, at that time, discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship and um, eager reader that I was. I read uh, The Cost of Discipleship, Ethics, Letters and Papers from Prison, uh, all in one semester when I was a college student, and it, I just got completely blown away. I loved Bonhoeffer, but I, now that I've read him many times since, I'm pretty convinced I didn't know much of what I was reading at that time, but it was formative for me. Well, Matt, in many ways, captures one of the major concerns that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had at the time, and it it has Bonhoeffer called it costly grace versus cheap grace, and and I don't I don't think Matt uh, uses this kind of language in the book. It's it's certainly not prominent, and it's it's not really part of what he's doing. Um, and, but what Matt does in this book is explain uh, the idea of faith as allegiance, and and I'm wondering, uh, in other words. Uh, I'm going to ask Matt to unpack some of this, but many people have some instinctive ideas of what the word faith means. And Matt doesn't so much take them, uh, take those ideas out of their hand, but, um, but he makes their hands bigger or he makes them use two hands, or he says, what's in your hand is actually much bigger than you think it is, something like that. So Matt, I wonder if you could give some of the main ideas of your book. And uh, welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, so the, the main idea is that we, we want to see the word pistis in the New Testament as involving ideas that go beyond just belief or trust uh, to something embodied, allegiance. Uh, and why should we think that? Uh, the second half of the big idea would be because the gospel itself, its very nature, demands that we see faith as allegiance. Uh, what has happened is that the gospel has gotten cut short, so that the gospel has come to be uh, a transaction of forgiveness of sins, or believing that Jesus died for my sins, or justification by faith, or a variety of ways to speak about that. But what 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 I want to argue, and and this really does build on some of Scott's work in the King Jesus Gospel, is that the gospel is bigger than that, uh, and uh, the gospel stretches to the proclamation of Jesus's kingship. And once we see that Jesus's kingship is really the climactic point in the gospel. Uh, it helps us to, to think more critically about what faith language actually entails, that it has to involve ideas of allegiance. You know, this is, I think this is, I mean, the, the word pistis, the Greek word for faith, um, is connected to who you're believing in. And, and this is where I think is one of the most important things you say in your book. And I don't think it can be emphasized enough. I think it has to be said over and over for people to catch on to its significance. And that is, if, uh, if Jesus is Savior, then faith means trust in his saving work or trust in him who can save. If Jesus is Lord, then the proper response to, the word, to, to a Lord is to submit. 
or to bow down to. But if Jesus is king, the proper response to a king is a declaration of allegiance and loyalty to serve that king in that king's, now here I'm going to stretch my Anabaptist pacifism, to serve in that king's army. So this is where I think it's so important is that faith is sometimes reduced in Christian vocabulary because it is not thought through carefully enough as to what we're actually saying when we say we believe in Jesus. Who is this Jesus? And once we answer who is this Jesus, then the word pistis or the word faith takes on a brand new sense or bigger senses, or I think what you're doing is it clarifies what that relationship is. I I wonder if if you would um, add anything to what I just said there, Matt. Yeah, I I do agree. I think that the identity of Jesus is paramount. Um, And we want to say, of course, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior. Uh, Those are both certainly true, right? We don't want to lose uh, either one of those ideas. Uh, But but obviously, he's the Christ. Um, And I think that one of the one of the things that has happened due to our deep familiarity with the Christian story, uh, even as it's been somewhat lost in our postmodern age, is that Jesus Christ has become his name, right? It's 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 considered purely a name. Uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus' first name, last name, Christ, or something like that, yep, you know, yep. um, and or we don't even pause to think over the Christ bit of it very much. Yep. Um, and uh, and so what, one of the things I'm trying to do to try to draw to, to, to cause a little pause in people's mind and to to force them to think a little more carefully about the Christ bit is to just stop saying Jesus Christ and just now do Jesus the Christ, just to sort of force the the pause there yeah. uh, and and to, to highlight the idea that we're talking about the royal Messiah here when we talk about this claim and that w- what's the most natural way to speak about this connection to this royal Messiah than uh, allegiance. Yeah, and uh, I, I like, I, I don't, uh, I probably should do this as a teacher, insist that my students call him, uh, I like King Jesus, uh, because it, it, uh, it gets away from Christ being, and I, I think you're totally right. So many people think that's Jesus's second name. And Matt, uh, I'm reading, I just finished reading, and I wrote a review this morning on the blog, Matthew Novenson's new book, The Grammar of Messianism, and he has a book called Christ Among the Messiahs, in which um, he illustrates how many people really think the word Christ means it's just a proper name. It means almost nothing in in a sense. And this has become a very popular idea among uh, biblical scholars. But uh, Tom Wright and others and and Novenson are arguing that it means more than that. It means Messiah. Now, Novenson has a little bit of a weakened sense. He thinks it's an honorific rather than an official title. Uh, I think Tom Wright would see it a little bit more as a title. Uh, and some of my other New Testament scholar friends uh, who are into the Jewish uh, context uh, are emphasizing that it means Messiah. But I, I want to I want to repeat this, uh, that what you're saying is so important, is because gospel is more than a message of how to get saved, and because gospel is a declaration of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, he's the King, he's the Lord, um, he's the Christ— then the proper response of faith or pistis in the New Testament has to be 
defined by who Jesus is. And if he is the king, then the proper response to a king is allegiance. And this is where um, when you uh, say, uh, you know, here this is the the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and you come out with a title, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Um, This is clearly uh, a timely uh, suggestion and provocation into Reformation thinking, and and there's not a few people in the Reformation type uh, theology who who are a little bit nervous about anything other than faith as trust. So I wonder, uh, Matt, if you have any uh, if you are trying to make a point to that kind of Reformation theology, or is you saying something at this special time in history? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, I, I was aware that it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation as I was writing this book and uh, and was thinking about that some. But my, my intention was certainly not to sort of poke the Reformation in the eye. I'm a Protestant. Uh, I believe in the, you know, the uh, in the, the traditional five solas, although I would want to perhaps nuance the proper boundaries of those solas. And I, I do agree that um, maybe the line has not always been drawn in a biblical way with regard to those solas. Um, I would think, for instance, of sola gratia, of grace alone, um, that grace alone in some some uh, d- dimensions of Reformed theology uh, gets pushed back infinitely, right? It gets kind of moved back, 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 not just from the time of the cross uh, to, uh, to uh, something that God did before the foundations of the world, let's say. Um, now, it's true that God did have a plan for the church in Christ before the foundations of the world. The problem is when Paul uses the term grace, he doesn't actually use the term grace with regard to that choosing before the foundations of the world. So uh, people associate uh, any kind of gracious activity with, uh, you know, of of God's plan with the word grace, and then they mobilize that grace alone idea to move it back further and further and further. So when we're drawing proper biblical boundaries around these ideas, we do have to be a little bit careful. Paul, whenever he speaks about grace, is mainly talking about the Christ event, uh, not something that God did before the foundations of the world, even if God did do something uh, before the foundations of the world, as we find in Ephesians, that he certainly did. Yeah, um, and I find sometimes, Matt, when people talk about grace, when grace means everything, grace almost starts meaning nothing. Yes, uh, yes. And, and, and that's right. Grace is the unleashing of God's uh, mercy and generosity and salvation in Christ through the power of the Spirit to make us the kinds of people God wants us to make. It's not simply... Um, I. Uh, I often have used this a story um, where I was talking to a, uh, a former student of mine who's a pastor uh, who was very strong Calvinist now and quite proud of it. And he was giving me the line of how he constructs his church services on a Sunday morning. And he says, I spend a lot of time making, you know, preaching law or, or reading about the law so people will feel guilty. And then I apply grace. And, and I said to him, so grace means to, to, to you that we're just damn lucky to be elect. And I was pretty mad at him. Uh. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, yeah, that's kind of what I mean by it. And I said, you know, uh-huh. I, said, I think grace is goodness. It, it, it's not that God wants us to make feel, wants to make us feel bad. Grace is God's mercy toward us to draw us into his love. 
And, uh, and that's where, that's where I get, I get kind of bent out of shape about grace, but Matt, Matt, do you think that there's linguistic basis for using the word allegiance rather than the word faith? Yeah, I do think there's some linguistic evidence uh, that would support this. I I give some of this uh, evidence uh, in uh, the book, uh, both in the introduction and then in, in, in particular in chapter four. Um, but there, there's evidence sprinkled throughout the book. But one example of this would be in First uh, Maccabees, which is uh, written maybe 150 years before Jesus's death, approximately. Um, and we have an example in there where there's a certain King Demetrius uh, who's trying to uh, to uh, persuade the Jewish people toward his cause. He's worried that his rival, a certain Alexander, is going to, you know, um, ace him out. So he's trying to persuade persuade them, and uh, he he tells the Jewish people, continue still to keep uh, pistis with us, keep, uh, as some translations yeah. would put it, keep faith with us, yeah, uh, yeah. and we will repay you with good for what you do for us, for instance. Yeah. Well, this, this word pistis here is probably better translated allegiance or loyalty. Keep yeah. loyalty with us. Keep keep yeah. allegiance to us. Uh, and then we'll repay you for good for what you have done to us. This is a, a, an analogy where a king right, is speaking to a subject people, uh, and he's encouraging them to maintain loyalty. So that would be just one of many uh, instances, yeah. I think, that we could bring out where uh, we see that pistis uh, does include sometimes uh, the notion of allegiance. Now, it doesn't always do so. Um, but my question then is, if it is part of the genuine semantic range or the uh, the field of meaning of of the word pistis, uh, if allegiance is genuinely part of that, by what right can we exclude it when we move into Paul's yeah. letters? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I do think there's evidence, linguistic evidence that would support this. And then in the in the New Testament, for instance, uh, in Matthew chapter twenty three, we have the word pistis, and there it clearly means faithfulness. It's not some kind of just simple uh, um, beginning point trust. And one of the great uh, ideas uh, that we encounter as we read the New Testament is that the word pistis uh, is can be translated into English as faith but it can also be translated as faithfulness. And it is not always clear which of those two terms is, is, um, is intended. And that confusion is one of the uh, doors that unlocks the mystery of the meaning of this word. So I often say that the word faith means trust over time. Uh, or and, and that's where I think, Matt, I think you corrected me. I think trust over time is even better translated as allegiance because allegiance is both a declaration, a, a, a signing up for a, an initial moment as well as an ongoing commitment. And and as you talk about faith as allegiance, I wonder if you could draw um, our listeners' attention a little bit to what you say when you say faith is not a few things. What what are the things uh, that you think need to be corrected when you say faith is not? What what are the ideas that you say? You know, it's it's more than this. Do you do you yeah. have those memorized or? Do uh, I, yeah, I, I think I can do it well enough. <laughs> um, yeah, well, this really gets into especially important conversations within broader culture. These would be, in general, not ideas that are, are ones that s- scholars of the New Testament hold about faith, 
um, but certainly that have become very pervasive in our contemporary culture. So it's good to kind of to clear those away. And I think as people are having broader conversations with with folks out and about, uh, undoubtedly, these ideas about faith are in people's minds. Uh, one one idea that is sometimes in people's minds is that faith is the opposite of evidence. Uh, and that um, we have on the one hand, we have evidence on one side, uh, and on the other side, we have faith, and the two don't really meet together, and that God actually is really not a, not a fan of the evidence portion, right? What he really likes is the faith bit, and so that really what <laughs> God God wants us to do is sort of just ignore any relevant evidence uh, and instead say, well, I'm just not interested in evidence. What I'm really interested in is faith, and, I, and, and so that I just do that, uh, and that, and that somehow pleases God. Right. Yeah. This is in this is in people's minds. It's a it's a very dangerous idea. Yeah. Let uh, me just add, because because, Matt, I know you you had an, a, a, one of your first degrees is more in the field of sciences. I, th- I find this. Some people say, well, I look at the scientific evidence and it sure does look like the universe is really, really old and the earth is really, really old. But I I believe in God. So therefore, I'm going to believe these things in spite of the evidence or against the evidence, that's what God really wants of us. That, that's the sort of idea that I encounter at times with faith. Yeah. Well, at any rate, I jumped yeah. in. I should. Yeah. What? No, that's okay. That's, that's, you know, often called fide, you know, fideism, that yeah. idea that, you know, we're just sort of uh, believe without any evidence. Another, and piggybacking on this, this is a closely related idea, would be the idea that faith is a leap in the dark. You know, yeah. um, uh, the idea that God just wants us to launch out at him despite any evidence. Uh, and that really it's that sort of existential, like personal, like, you know, kind of um, uh, jumping toward God that is the thing that really pleases him. This has been popularized by Kierkegaard. Uh, and I don't think that this is really what the Bible is all about when it's talking about um, faith either. Yeah. Uh, an, another another problematic idea is, of course, uh, the construction of faith as something that's opposed to works uh, and that it's the opposite of works. So that, you know, that faith is uh, is the, the thing that pleases God. Works are the great danger to us uh, because we might trust in them. Uh, and then we fall away because we've trusted in works rather than trusted in in God so that God really wants faith and he doesn't really want works. Well, there's an element of truth to that, of course, right, as uh, we would want to say that um, that we we the allegiance must be our priority to to Christ uh, and that uh, our obedience, I think, is is part and our good works are folded up into the embodiment of that allegiance. Uh, and so that we can't put the priority on having works first or something along those lines. Uh, but we wouldn't want to say it's the polar opposite of faith either. And I think we get ourselves in trouble with that. You know, uh, Matt, I grew up uh, in a world not not too far from the kind of world you grew up in. And I grew up with the idea. I, I, I don't know that it was ever written down, <clears throat> but I grew up hearing that good works were bad works, that I was a Baptist, and we were not characterized by good works. That's what the Catholics and the, and the mainline liberals did. We were characterized by faith. So I grew up with this idea that good works were bad. It was a bad thing to be involved in doing good works. It's uh, And I think that that's a part of why so many people are attracted to the idea that faith is the opposite of works. Um, but it's not the same when you get to a guy like Tim Keller, uh, who who talks about performance and religion versus grace and faith. They're not quite saying the same thing, but at times um, 
the, the church has gotten quite confused about the relationship of faith and good works. And I think one of the great things of your book here, Matt, is the uh, nuancing of the relationship of faith to works. And uh, so that that's a good one. I see the next one is that uh, that you say faith is not an it's all good attitude. What do you mean huh. by that one? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, when I teach my students about this, I, I usually use an analogy of, you know, Tom Petty or someone like that, you know, um, you know, who you can sort of imagine just saying, you know, don't be so uptight, just chill out. And, you know, even Tom Petty, he might even add like, you know, just smoke a joint with me or something along those lines, you know, uh, and you're all stressed out, bro. You know, you need to just you need to just like relax, like and have faith, like whatever stressful situation you're in. <laughs> Like God's just gonna, he's just gonna bring you through it. And so just chill out and, uh, and relax about life and put on a tie dye t-shirt with me, you know, and, uh, and everything is going to be okay. This is really actually, uh, something that's infused, uh, popular culture. I mean, it's amazing how many of my students today, I think really do have that idea of faith, uh, at, at the front of their mind. They hear that so often from people, they're going through a bad situation or whatever. And people are like, well, just, just trust God's in control of things and, and relax. Uh, and, and this is really a kind of a vacuous idea, right? And, and sometimes they'll just say, just have faith mm-hmm. and faith in what? Well, it's, it's yeah. not about it's faith and faith and faith, you know, it's exactly. just, just have yeah. some faith and you'll get yeah. Well, you sound pretty good. I I have to tell you something, man. I've never heard of Tom Petty, but uh, I'm sure your students have. Uh, but, well, I, I'm even surprised you haven't heard of Tom Petty now, Scott. Come on. I mean, Matt, something happened to me in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and I just sort of completely tuned out music. And about the only, this is no kidding. The only people I listened to music-wise in those era, those yeah. times were John Michael Talbot and a little bit of Michael Card. And I don't remember listening to hardly anything else. So I, I have to apologize. I I lost out from the era of the Beatles and the Beach Boys till um Celine Dion. <laughs> oh goodness. Oh my oh, goodness. What That's... a leap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, that, that must have been a confusing re-entry for you, Scott. When you came, when you came back. <laughs> Celine oh, Dion. All right. Came, wow. Okay. You came you came back and you left the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Nirvana was playing. You know, like this, Nirvana. this had I, yeah, I, don't even know, I I read about Nirvana when I read Herman Hesse. So, so, so well, it's a band. Oh, so I'm moral, really bad on music, Matt. I that's just, a that's moral okay. of the story is we don't take Scott to a music trivia competition. I guess. That yeah. Was, well, you right. know, there's some there's some stuff in the middle there. You might need to go check out. You could you could probably handle a little James Taylor. I'm thinking uh, that that might be good for you. you try I out a little of that. Listen to this. One time, my son was playing in a baseball tournament in St. Louis, and we get onto an elevator with a couple of parents and we go up to our room, we get off. And one of the parents says, do you know who was on that in the elevator with us? And I said, no. And they said, that was James Taylor. Oh, so right. I was right there with him. Oh goodness. Uh, See, well, I, there you go. I have heard the song. Um, I have heard a few of his and I like, I like James Taylor. So I caught, I caught up with James Taylor. Okay. Anyway, well, good, here, good. The last one you have is faith is not reducible to intellectual assent. 
Yeah. And this, this really is kind of targeting the idea of, uh, of just believe. And that's all that we need to do is believe a certain statement about, uh, about truths about Jesus or, um, uh, or, or that uh, all we have to do is affirm a proposition that Jesus died for our sins. Yeah. So in, in the, in the crosshairs here in particular would be the free grace movement. Uh, this goes to a sort of back to a famous, you know, debate through the 80s and 90s between lordship salvation and free grace. Uh, and the, the free gracers led by uh, Zane Hodges and others just argued that really all that God requires of us is that we just affirm that Jesus died for our sins. If that's a true statement about reality uh, and you can affirm it, um, well, then you have done what God requires and you're on your way to heaven. Nothing else could possibly be required or would compromise grace. Um, I think these Matt, folks... Matt, when I was first teaching in seminary, I had a student who was a Zane Hodges nut. Mm. And uh, he totally loved the guy. And he listened to his sermon. He he would tell us that his pastor was Zane Hodges. And, and he would only listen to his sermons on Sunday. But he also said that the word repent only means, it's the Greek word is metanoia or metanoeo. And it only means to change your mind. It doesn't mean, and, I, and I'm sitting here preaching Bonhoeffer and discipleship, and he just thinks I'm a total basket case, and I'm totally wrong. So I know, I didn't know, I didn't know so much that it was called the free grace movement. I didn't remember that. But um, I do, I have met many people in my life who would say faith is just merely believing the right things about the gospel. So. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous idea. Right. I, I, I tell my students this is salvation by factoids. Right. Like if you can just <laughs> cram the right facts into your head, you're saved. Yeah. Uh, not a good not a good idea. Right. And and clearly uh, we would see evidence in the New Testament, uh, you know, the, the very famous passage in Romans, you know, 10, 9 through 10, you know, where it talks about the need to confess. And uh, and and as part of that, I think one of the things that's that's good to bring out is that it's not just confess Jesus died for my sins. It's confess Jesus is Lord. It yeah. kind of it, it's sort of it, it helps us to recognize that the confession is an acknowledgement of Jesus's lordship and a demand that we're going to need to submit our lives to him as the great king and that our salvation depends on it. Uh, yeah. It's not just an optional extra. Yeah. Okay. Now, Matt, I, uh, we're, we're getting toward the end of our time here. And so I want to, uh, I know you teach at Quincy university and I think I could, I'm, it's safe to say that you got a lot of students in your class who may not be Christians or um, you deal in a world like that um, and you deal it with college students who are struggling with faith. Um, if you were evangelizing, if you were talking about the proper response to the gospel, how would you tell a young adult, uh, how would you translate this idea of salvation by allegiance alone into conversations with, with those sorts of people? Yeah, um, I don't know that there's a one-size-fits-all solution to this this problem. I mean, there's a, a million ways to preach the gospel, but we do need to actually tell the story. Uh, I think that we can sometimes deceive ourselves into thinking that, well, if I just live out the story, then then my life is an expression of the gospel. Well, that's true. It does reinforce the gospel, but um, the gospel is really a verbally articulated message. So Perfect. I always make sure they know the story, right? That that we yeah. we talk about, you know, how Jesus preexisted with God the Father, and that God sent sent the Son on our behalf. You know, that He was a fulfillment of very specific kingly promises that had been made to David, uh, that he died for our sins. And 
This is something that's not just arbitrary, uh, but this was something that was anticipated by the scriptural patterns that had been given in the Old Testament, that it's Mm -hmm. in accordance with the scripture. The death was a real death. He was buried. Uh, He was raised on the third day. And this resurrection is also surprisingly anticipated by scripture as Mm -hmm. God uh, speaks uh, in the Old Testament of the rescue of the righteous sufferer in a whole number of places. Uh, Then he's uh, he was seen by many witnesses and then exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And then I really kind of slow down there, right? As I want to, I want to, I want to hit that part hard and to help them to think through the implications of what does that mean for him to have been enthroned? And what might that mean for us now if we were to, to really take that seriously? the idea of Jesus's enthronement. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get them to move from a model that's uh, sort of based around a get saved culture to a, a, a gospel centered culture uh, that would, would help them to recognize this, this might demand them to begin to live a cruciform life, you Mm -hmm. know, in light of, uh, in light of Jesus's, uh, the shape of Jesus's life. Why did God vindicate him? Well, it's Mm -hmm. because, because he lived a certain cross shaped life and lived it perfectly. Right. Mm -hmm. And that we then enter into that as we come into union with Christ. And it's as we live out that narrative in our own lives in union with his righteousness uh, that we then are vindicated by God, too. But that we have to move through that cross shaped pattern in our lives. It's not an optional thing. Right. I mean, that's uh, our our life has to be an expression of the gospel or we're not in Christ. Uh, And to help them to kind of get that idea that that Jesus's rule is also something that is uh, something that we participate in even now, that we begin to exercise stewardship over creation in Christ, uh, and that he will come again as judge. So that's, I, I really try to tell the story again, help them to, to think through um, the different stages of the gospel, but to really slow down on the Jesus's Lord, and to, to help them to ponder how that could actually change the, the narrative of their lives. You know, Matt, as you were listening, as you were talking there, I, I, I got to thinking, this your talk right there sounds like Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. You know, they, they just kind of told these various, these elements in the story of Jesus. And that story, Peter, uh, when Peter is preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the audience when the story of Jesus is being told. And, and so I, what I see you saying is you, it's not so much that you're telling people what they have to do to be saved. You're telling people about Jesus, and that becomes the implication of, of life is to say, this is who he is. What do I think of Jesus? I need to give myself to him. So yes. I, I, I like that. So uh, that, that's very good. I wonder if you have any closing thoughts about salvation by allegiance alone for our audience uh, as we uh, as we close up here. Well, I do hope that this uh, this book and uh, others like it, your book, obviously, The King Jesus Gospel, it makes me think of N.T. Wright's uh, book also, uh, uh, How God Became King. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that these books uh, and the ideas in these books uh, need to get out there, not just in the sense of these immediate books, but I, I hope that Christian scholarship keeps producing more things along these lines as I think it's an essential message for the church. It's certainly a good entry point, I think, for ongoing conversations with with others about the true nature of the gospel, helping to uh, to clean up, I guess, uh, maybe our, our language of the gospel to get a little bit more precise about what it is, that it's not justification by faith, not that that has nothing to do with the gospel. Yeah. 
gospel, yeah, but yeah. that it's not the same thing as the gospel. And mm-hmm. to sort of uh, to get a little more precision there, and I think that in, in so doing, um, my hope is that it will help reinvigorate uh, a coming together of discipleship and salvation, that um, people will increasingly come to realize that what it means to be a a citizen of the kingdom of God means that Jesus is reigning and that we're, we're in the process of, of going through a, a, a cruciform shaped life so that we're fit to reign along with him. Uh, and that this is not something that's just extra that discipleship, yeah. discipleship is the story of our journey, our, our saving journey. Yeah. Uh, and then I think if the church can get that, then the world is going to begin to get what the church is all about and what Jesus is all about, and is going to find the the the, the whole Christian story that has become a tired story for the West. They're going to find it to be uh, an invigorating and life giving story again. That's my yeah. hope. Well, Matt, uh, I think I'm not if I'm unless I'm mistaken. I think this is your third book. I read. The Hermeneutics of Apostolic Proclamation, which I think was an outstanding dissertation that you finished. I I confess that I never read, I, I, I think your second book was called The Birth of the Trinity. Is that correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this third book. And so uh, you have done, I've heard great things about The Birth of the Trinity. It's a book that's on my short list of books to read. Uh, but uh, it seems like every day new books arrive on my desk. <laughs> yeah, I uh, yeah. Uh, but I just want to commend you for your great uh, contribution in the academic world and also for your interest in things that have significance in the church as well. So it's been great to have you on uh, the Kingdom Roots podcast today. And I want to commend to our readers, our listeners, read this book. Couldn't agree more. Matt, before we go, any uh, anywhere where our listeners might be able to learn more uh, about you, what you're working on, and anything like that? Uh, okay, yeah. I, I do have a podcast called On Script uh, that I've been uh, pretty busy doing, www.onscript.study, or you can find it on iTunes or whatever, however you find podcasts. Um, so uh, that's uh, a resource you can check out. Uh, we tend to focus on interviews of other scholars and do some more heavy-hitting biblical scholarship, uh, as well as some more popular pieces, too. Um, and then beyond that, I, I don't really have a whole lot of other social media interaction other than Facebook. You can certainly find me, friend me on Facebook uh, if you're interested in, uh, in in keeping up to date on my scholarship and life and whatnot. Uh, and then I do have a personal website and I have an academia.edu page, but I don't do a lot with those at this present time. I may I may do more with the, with the, the personal website uh, as it does have a blog uh, dimension and I may get back to that eventually. But uh, currently, I've been so busy with other scholarship that I haven't been doing much more than using that as a deposit to uh, sort of showcase some of my publications and whatnot. But anyway, um, that's how you can stay uh, stay in contact with me. You can always drop me an email too, uh, mattbatesqu at gmail.com. Chaz, Scott, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Yep. Good to be with you, Matt. Thanks, Matt, for being with us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on another episode of the Kingdom Roots podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation, man. I hope you enjoyed it as, as much as I did hearing about you know what, what salvation by allegiance alone really means and look like. And I know, especially from, from my perspective, you know, what's not faith? Man, that, was, that list was so helpful. And how the cruciform life is not an extra, but it's how we actually live out the story of the kingdom that we're all invited to. So 
So if you'd be interested in any of those links Matt mentioned, they'll be in the show notes. Before we go, just want to remind you one last time about the webinar that Scott, I, and Tara Beth are going to be doing next week on women leading in the church. If you're interested in that webinar, it's going to be next Thursday, May 25th. And you can register for that on seminary.edu slash she leads webinar. Again, that website to register is seminary.edu slash she leads webinar. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, we hope you have a great day, and we look forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 